So Father, we just ask now that you would use your word to set our affections on your glory. God, that we would be a people who are not being conformed to this world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would, as your word says, have the mind of Christ, who though he existed as God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but became a bondservant and made himself nothing. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and because of this, you have exalted his name above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the praise of your glory. So Father, we submit ourselves now to the authority of your word, which was revealed to us in the flesh through your son, Jesus Christ, and has been preserved on the pages that we read. We ask now, Father, will you sanctify us in the truth of your word? Edify your church, glorify your name. Ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, good to be with you again this morning. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. If you're our guest, my name is Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor, and uh, we're honored to have you here worshiping with us this morning. I want to say thanks to Dustin uh, for a strong word last Sunday, and uh, a couple weeks ago we wrapped up a two-month message series. We were looking through the life of David in the books of First and Second Samuel, and uh, today, uh, with it being December 1st, the fourth Sunday before Christmas, we're now into the Advent season, so we're going to be looking, uh, Lord willing, over the next few weeks at John chapter 1. Um, while there's no biblical requirements uh, or mandate that we observe Advent as it's been developed through church history on the liturgical calendar, uh, God's word is clear that it's good and right and true that we have uh, seasons of thorough introspection and self-examination and reflection, and that is really the aim and the intention of the Advent season. It's a season of preparation. Uh, comes from the Latin word Adventus, just simply meaning coming. So Advent for us is a season where we both reflect on the fact that Christ has come to us, that we, as we, we sang earlier this morning, Christ was God in the flesh appearing to us, coming to be with us. We celebrate the fact that Christ has come, but in this spirit of coming, we also anticipate the fact that Christ is coming again. And the cataclysmic event that was the first coming of Jesus Christ is dramatically unfolded for us in John 1, uh, which is where we are going to be, Lord willing, from now through Christmas Eve. The purpose of the Gospel of John, the reason it was written, uh, is found for us at the end of the Gospel account in John 20, verses 30 through 31, where John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John makes it really clear here at the end of the gospel account. These are some of the things, not all of the things that Jesus has done. He makes that even more clear a few verses later in chapter 21, verse 25. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This week, our staff is moving into the office space on the opposite side of our building. So last week, as I was preparing this message uh, in between kind of message prep sessions, I was also packing up my office, which includes uh, my personal library. And being a bibliophile is all fun and games until you have to pack up and move, right? And so uh, I'm reminded of this every time I have to move my library. I shouldn't purchase more books. I'm going to because you buy more food before you've eaten all the food at your house so I can buy more books before I've read all the books I have. And that's okay. So I'm packing up this, uh, this past week and I'm as I'm packing 
packing up my library. It's got hundreds of books, uh, several hundred thousand pages are surrounding me. And as I'm packing it up, I'm thinking about these words from John. Because I've, I've got just, just surrounded by these boxes, surrounded by stacks of books, hundreds of them uh, focus on the Bible and church history and theology and the person and work of Jesus Christ. But according to John, what I have isn't even scratching the surface of all that Jesus said and did. So the gospel accounts don't exhaustively detail every single thing that Jesus did, but these things, John says, that is the things that were written in his gospel account. They're written for two primary purposes. First, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is, he's the the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one that they've been waiting for. And second, by believing, he says, that you may have life in his name. So it doesn't exhaustively detail every single thing that Jesus did, but what is revealed to us is for this life sufficient to believe and find eternal life in this name. Now remember, this is at the conclusion of the Gospel of John. This is where John gives us his reason and his purpose for writing, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that by believing you may have life in his name. So I think it's significant then that we pay attention to the name that John uses to introduce us to Jesus. Who is this one who is written about that if all of the things that he did were written down, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. How do you introduce this person? Here's how we see John introduce him in John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, I'm, I'm reading this passage this morning from the English Standard Version. In the ESV, there are a total of 24 words in verses one and two, but there's only nine different words that get used in these couple of verses. And seven of those 24 words are direct references to the name of God or Christ. So 24 words total, only nine different words, seven of the 24 directly reference the name of the Lord. And John 1, 1 and 2 are easily two of the most memorable verses in all the Bible. And yet I would make the case that you will not find two more theologically packed sentences in all of scripture. So for those of you following along your message notes, there's a very simple but profound truth that we're going to meditate on this morning from John 1, and it's that Jesus is the eternal and incarnate Word of God. Jesus is the eternal Word of God, and Jesus is the Word of God incarnate who came to us in the flesh. John says in the conclusion, he's written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that by believing may have life in his name, then all of all the names he could have used to introduce to us Jesus, the name he uses to introduce us to Christ in John 1, 1 and 2 is that he is the word. This word carries a tremendous amount of significance. The term that John uses here uh, in John 1 is logos, and it's, it's a significant word for both the Greek people and the Hebrew people who were the first to read this. So for Greeks, the term really referenced the reason or rule or principle uh, that governed the universe. So just a, a solid nerd reference for you here, think like the force in Star Wars. Okay, this is really how the, the Greeks saw this term uh, uh, logos. They saw it as, a, as an, uh, an ethereal mystical power that ran through all things, that held all things together. And for the Jewish people, uh, the term really represented the totality of fullness and wisdom and understanding. And for both groups, this word didn't just embody a single word. It, it really wrapped up and encapsulated a total message. So for those of you who might remember our time in the book of 1 John a couple of years back, John is writing these things uh, toward the end of the first century where there's a great deal of debate about who Jesus really was. And one of the more prevalent groups of false teachers that were uh, around during this time were the Gnostics. 
And what the Gnostics taught was that God could not have come in the flesh because all flesh was corrupt, so God only came to us in a spiritual sense, and only those with a unique, uh, special understanding uh, were, were truly capable of knowing God. Now, again, this is towards the end of the first century, so John is an old man when he's writing these things down. He's coming towards the end of his life, and, and so John is, is seeing all of these false teachings. You remember John, throughout the gospel accounts, he's demonstrated to us as the disciple whom Jesus loved. His closest friend, John, was. It's John who's, who's laying his head on Christ there at the Last Supper. It's John who's knelt down with Mary at the foot of the cross as God in the flesh is dying before his very eyes. So John is having none of it with all of this teaching that God could not have come in the flesh because he saw him in the flesh. And so you know, last week there was a, a big big boxing match. Deontay Wilder it took him seven rounds to land the knockout punch on Andy Rees. John throws his haymaker in the first two verses of the book. He wastes no time with the announcement that Jesus is the eternal and incarnate word, capital W, of God. John's saying that Jesus is the reason and the rule and the principle that governs the universe, that Jesus is the full embodiment of wisdom and knowledge, that Jesus has come to us in the flesh so that we may know God and that by knowing him, we may have life in his name. So for centuries, God has spoken to his people through prophets. He's spoken them through revelation. He's spoken them through visions and through dreams. God speaks to his people through the written word of the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature. But now God has been personally revealed in the flesh through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So as the word of God, John is telling us that Jesus is the ultimate, definitive, conclusive, conclusive eternal word of God. Christ is God's final word. He is the final word that the Father spoken. And this is made evident through the words that he uses at the beginning here of this passage, very simply in the beginning. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen those words in scripture, is it? Where else do we see these three words in the beginning? Genesis 1.1. So we go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So by using this language, John is taking us back to the very, very beginning, not just of scripture, but the beginning of all things. And how did God create the heavens and the earth? How does he do this? By speaking Speaking words, God's first action that we see of him in scripture is that he is a creator and he creates by speaking. So by saying in the beginning was the word, John has inextricably bound Jesus to eternity past. We're going to look at this more next week, but this is how Paul talks about it in Colossians 1. He says of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. When Paul says that he's the firstborn of all creation, he doesn't use that in the sense that Christ himself was physically born. He uses that to intends to say that he's preeminent. He's before all things. Jesus Christ is the uncaused cause who has caused everything else to come into existence. So Hebrews 1 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Genesis 1 shows us that in the beginning, God speaks creation into existence by a word, and John 1 shows us that from the beginning, Christ himself is the word by which God created. I want you to think about this maybe when you're trying to fall asleep tonight. That Jesus Christ not only pre-existed the visible creation, but from eternity past was before the very existence of time or space. Sweet dreams. He is the eternal incarnate 
word of God who has been and was from the beginning, now is, forever will be. And so here's three truths that we draw about the logos, the eternal incarnate word from John chapter one. In the, in the beginning, we see very simply first that he was. In the beginning was the word. This is not was in the past tense, as in he was, but no longer is. This is was in its imperfect tense, as in he already was. I mean, John 1 could make Dr. Seuss blush because Jesus was wasing before there ever was a was. He just was. The New Living Translation interprets it like this. In the beginning, the word already existed. I still like what the ESV does by simply saying in the beginning was the word because I think that really just wraps up the mystery of, of, of what's going on here, of what the truth entails. He simply was. And this language takes our minds back to Exodus chapter 3, where God calls to Moses from the burning bush to return to Egypt, lead Israel out of bondage and slavery. Moses asked the Lord, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That name Yahweh that God uses there is derived from four consonants, Y-H-W-H, that corresponds to the Hebrew verb simply meaning to be. He is the eternal God who simply is. He always has been, he currently is, he forever will be, and he exists outside of time and space in eternity as the great I am. So it's really significant. Then we get to John chapter eight. We find Jesus in a disagreement with the religious leaders and he tells them in verse 53, if anyone keeps my word, they will never see death. And the religious leaders hear him say this. And they basically respond by asking, who in the world do you think you are? What type of person makes a claim like this? You think you're better than Abraham? Do you think you're better than the prophets? And here's how Christ responds in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. We saw last year at Mark 6, Jesus walks out on the stormy sea. He sees his terrified disciples in the boat and he cries out to them, take heart, it is I. Literal translation, take heart, I am. Christ himself is the word by which God created all things. He is the one who upholds the word by the, the world by the, you know, and the universe by the word of his power. And he's the only one by whom and through whom and for whom all things have been created. In the beginning, because from eternity past, he was, he simply is. In the beginning, the word was. Second, more specifically, he was with God. In the beginning, the word was, and he was with God. Language John uses here carries with it this very intimate sense of being side by side or more literally face to face. And the presence of this single word with really serves as one of our foundations for the doctrine of the Trinity, where we teach that there is one God. So as Christians, we are not uh, polytheists who teach that there are many gods. We are monotheists, believing that there's one God. And yet we believe that our God is three. He is three and one. He's one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity or the triunity. This language of the word being with God, once again, takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter one. As God is day by day speaking creation into existence, this is the pronouncement on the sixth day as he prepares to create man. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, well, who is the us in Genesis 1? Who's the our? This is the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. Last week, Dustin pointed us to the words of Jesus in John 7, 29, where Christ says, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. 
Christ, who was born as an infant in the flesh, had come from the Father because he had always been with the Father. In the beginning, he was. Second, more specifically, he was with God. And third, even more specifically, he was God. Again, not was in its past tense, as in he used to be God but no longer is. Was in the imperfect tense, as in he already was before creation. And this is an incredibly important point for us to emphasize because without this, this is how you drift into the heresy of Jehovah's Witnesses. Again, that's not a word we use lightly. That's not a word we throw around carelessly. But if you uh, look at the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses, you open up the New World Translation of the Bible that's used. You open up to John chapter 1. You would not find, and the word was God. You would find, and the word was a God. And it's the presence of that one single letter indefinite article that's there that is the difference between salvation in Jesus Christ and rejection of Jesus Christ. Because Christ does not present himself as a God. He presents himself as the God. And this is the same language that's used by John here, John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. That's a definite article. It was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Not a God or even the God, just simply God. And this is the announcement that John is making. He's trying to make it abundantly clear at the beginning of his gospel account. Jesus Christ is God. This isn't only what's communicated by John. This is what's communicated by Christ himself in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's clear from both the gospel writer and Christ himself that Christ is not one God among many. He is the only God and there is no other. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It's 24 words. He's given us two millennia worth of theology, and this morning we, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. Because here's what John tells us about this word, and this is going to be our point of focus over these next few weeks. John 1.14, that this word became flesh. The word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Literally, he, he pitched his tent among us. He set up his camp among us. He came into our neighborhood, is the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Theologically, we call this the doctrine of the incarnation. So if we just borrow directly from Wayne Grudem in his full volume of systematic theology, he defines the incarnation as the act of God, the Son, whereby he took to himself a human nature. This is the incarnation. Eternal, immortal, invisible God, he becomes a temporal, mortal, finite man. The, the immortal takes on mortal flesh. It seems so simple and easy to say that God became a man, but because it seems to violate every rule of logic and reason that defies every single natural law we can comprehend, it's been blowing our minds for 2,000 years. I love the way Charles Spurgeon was able to break this down for us. He who never began to be, but eternally existed, began to be what he eternally was not, and continued to be what he eternally was. Is that clear? Pretty straightforward, right? He who never began to be, so there was no start with Jesus. There was no birth. There was no beginning point. He preexisted the very existence of all things. He eternally existed. Then he began to be what he eternally was not. That is, he came to us in the flesh, and he did this without compromising who he eternally was. So it's not humanity or divinity. It's humanity and divinity. This is not that Christ comes as God or as man. Christ is both fully God and fully man. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. So how do we respond to this? I mean, how do we respond to the fact that the 
eternal God of the universe in the incarnation, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he's come to us. God came and dwelt among his people. This is the defining reality, church, that sets Christianity apart from virtually every other religious system. Because Christianity is a pronouncement of news. It's not prescriptive that tells us, here's what you need to do so that you can get to God. It's descriptive. It tells us this is what God has done in coming to us. The God who comes to his people. So so that we're not just trapped in the slavery and bondage of a religious system that says, try as hard as you can, and maybe at the end of all things, if you were good enough, you get eternal life with Jesus. That's not what it is. God looks on us in our helpless state. He knows that we can do absolutely nothing in and of ourselves to save ourselves, but he doesn't leave us there. He sends us his son, Jesus. It's the declaration of Luke 2 that we'll look at over the next few weeks. Good news of great joy for all people. God has come to be with his people. That's what John is telling us about here. So how how do we even respond to this day? What's this mean for us? Well, I think first, very simply, that means to know the word, capital W. We have to know the word. To know this word, to know the logos, the eternal incarnate God, we have to know this word. So just uh, as a fair warning, this is actually going to be a point of application uh, every single week of this message series. So maybe if we hit the repeat button on this next Sunday, don't worry, it's not that I'm, I'm running out of message material. It's towards the end of the year and I'm trying to skate through. And I, I think it's important that we emphasize this every week. Number one, because I think the text calls for it. But secondly, because both statistically and anecdotally, we can definitively see that despite our unprecedented access to the word of God as Western believers, we are quickly becoming the most biblically illiterate generation of Christians in proportion to our access to God's word. I don't know about you, church, but man, last week, I was just shaken to my core by that video that Dustin shared with us of the Kim Y'all people. I've seen this dozens of times. And man, it still just, it moved me so deeply to see the joy of these people's faces, to be receiving a Bible for the very first time in their language. They could know that the word who became flesh, they could hear the message of the gospel for the very first time in their language. Bart Ehrman is a famous critical scholar of the New Testament who teaches at UNC Chapel Hill. And uh, under his teaching, uh, many students have fallen away from the Christian faith. I had a friend from high school who sat one of his classes, and here's what he said happened on the first day. As Ehrman gets up and he's uh, speaking to his students, and he says, uh, how many of you profess to be Christians? And almost every single hand in the room goes up. And then he asks them, how many of you believe the Bible to be the inspired, infallible word of God? Almost every hand in the room goes up. And then he'd speak to a popular work of fiction. He'd say something like, how many of you read the entire Harry Potter series start to finish? Almost every single hand in the room goes up. Then he'll ask the question, how many of you have read the Bible start to finish? And almost no hand goes up. And so it should come as no surprise in that context that the faith of many is methodically picked apart by people who know how to take those hard, difficult parts that we're prone to ignore in our happy-go-lucky, everything-is-awesome Jesus culture of the 21st century. We like to skip over or gloss over the faith of many is just picked apart because we don't spend time immersing ourselves in this word. So what you're going to hear over the next few weeks is a challenge for us as a church family to read the Bible together cover to cover in 2020. Because if we're going to know that word, the capital W word, we have to know this word. Church, do not let the reality of this escape you. The gravity and the significance of this escape you. Because until you get this, you will never see this as anything more than another book. 
And you'll keep spending eight hours a day on Facebook and talking about how you don't have time to be in, in your Bible. Won't spend eight minutes in this because we don't understand what we have. Do not allow the gravity of this to escape you this morning. That Christ is revealed to us in John chapter one as the word and that God has provided for us a book. Christ is the fullness of the glory of God embodied. This is the fullness of the glory of God encapsulated, preserved for us. He is the word and he's given us the word. Christ is the vision and your Bible is the voice. Do not miss this. Do not miss this because until we understand this, this will be nothing to you. It'll just be another book that we can casually pass by. If you want to know the word, we have to know this word. Second, it means to be with God, we must believe in Christ. There is a, a literal eternity of difference between knowing that Jesus is good and knowing that Jesus is God. There's a total universe of, of difference here. Everyone says that Jesus is good. Everybody agrees that Jesus was a good man. Everybody agrees that Jesus was a good example, good teacher. Virtually everybody's in agreement here. But if we do not accept Jesus on his own terms, we reject him entirely. He himself is the single exclusive path to eternal life. And Jesus has said in John 14 that no one comes to the Father except through him. I shared this earlier this year, but I want to go back to these very famous words from C.S. Lewis, who himself had not been a believer. He's very uh, skeptical of God. He'd seen the evils of World War I firsthand. He uh, just, just rejected the notion, the idea of God. If there was a God, he didn't want to believe in him. And so, uh, But he does go on to become a believer. He's one of those brilliant philosophical minds to ever live. And, and this is what he had to say about accepting Jesus on his terms. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. It's not enough to call him good. We have to call him God. If you're to have eternal life in heaven with the father, it is only going to be in repentance, turning from your sin and putting your faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The world you live in today will call that narrow-minded. They'll call it arrogant to suggest that there is only one single truth, that there's only one single path of eternal life. But if we're going to accept Jesus, we have to accept him on his terms and not just on politically correct ones. Third, it means simply that we go to others because Christ has come to us. We're going to pick back up here next week, but the application here is, is very, very simple. God has come to us that we may know him, and in the same way, we turn and we go to others that they may know God. Again, this word Advent, it just especially emphasizes arrival or coming. So this is a season, yes, where we celebrate, we reflect on, on the fact that the word became flesh, the good news of great joy. For all people that the Savior's come so that we could repent of our sins and put our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a season of celebration, absolutely, but it's also a season of anticipation. And we're setting our eyes on the fact, the truth that Christ is coming again. And when he comes again, this is how John says he'll be revealed to us in Revelation 19. John writes, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, 
a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So John's introductory statement is also the concluding truth. Jesus is the eternal incarnate word of God. He has come to reveal God to his people, and one day he's going to return to bring his people to their God. So Father, we just ask very simply this morning that you would fix our eyes and our hearts on that day. I pray that the reality of knowing Jesus Christ, Lord, would make all other interests a shadow and a dream. That we would immerse ourselves in your word, that we would live in your word, that we would cherish and prize your word. That it encapsulates for us your voice. And you are still speaking to your people today. So Father, would we live in light of the reality of Christ's imminent return? And would you make us a people who are ready for his coming? 